Today, uh, we are starting a new series that we plan to be in, Lord willing, for the next eight weeks. And so this will kind of take us through the summer. And we're going to be in the book of Revelation. And so um, Revelation is a picture of a victorious and returning Christ that was given to a weary and hurting and struggling people. You know, there's a lot of... Um, debate about the book of Revelation, right? People wrestle with it, and what does this mean, and what does that mean? We can't even say the word right, you know? We call it revelations, and and all kinds, it's it's revelation. It's actually the revelation to John, right? It's not the revelation of John, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? And so Jesus revealed to John, okay? And so it opens that way, we're going to see. And now we're not going to get into a lot of the really debated stuff in Revelation, which is chapter 4 through chapter 22, um, where people really wrestle with all that. I'm not, you know, you're taking the easy way out, Pastor. No, I really feel like we need to focus here over the next eight weeks over um, the first three chapters. Uh, a lot of times what gets lost with Revelation is that this was a book written to seven particular churches. Um, that had real issues and real struggles and real things going on at that time. And at the beginning of the book, Jesus himself addresses those churches and addresses those issues. Much like you have Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that would write a letter to Philippi to address the issues that the Philippians were dealing with, or to Ephesus to address the issues that Ephesus was dealing with. Jesus writes a letter to seven churches, and he addresses them holistically, right, in the book of Revelation. But in the first three chapters, he addresses them individually. And what we'll see there is a lot of their struggles are our struggles. And not a lot's changed. We wrestle with some of the same things. And some of these churches, Jesus has to look at them and say, good job, you're doing great. And, and, but this over here, you're, you're really not doing well in. And then some churches, I mean, they're just, <laughs> it's just bad, right? And Jesus has to kind of rebuke them. <laughs> and so um, what we find is, what is Jesus like in a church? What does Jesus not like? In a church. And how should we live in light of all that? And what we're going to see in our text this morning is this book opens up with a vision of Christ in the midst of his churches. That's where we get the title, In Our Midst. And what we need to understand, the big takeaway over the next eight weeks, is that the church belongs to Jesus. Um, All churches and the church and North Park belongs to Jesus. It's not my church. It's not your church, really. It's it's not a particular committee or council's church. It's it's Jesus' church. And Jesus is here. And, and that's what we're going to see this morning. Jesus is in the midst of his church. He's present with us. And that speaks to all the issues that we're going to deal with over the next several weeks. Because what Jesus wants them to see before he deals with their issues is he wants them to see that he's with them. And, and he's with them to convict. He's with them to encourage. He's with them to empower, to discern, to discipline, you name it. He is overseeing. He is the chief overseer. He is the senior of senior pastors. He is the great shepherd who oversees the church and who deals with the issues in the church and who empowers the church. And that's what we're going to be seeing over the next several weeks. And so as a church, what we'll learn, hopefully, over the next eight weeks is that um, there are some things that we need to calibrate. You know what I mean? Um, we, we need to kind of make adjustments from time to time. And hopefully the Lord will reveal some things like that to us as we go through this. And as individuals, as believers, we'll see there are things in our lives. As Jesus addresses this church, these churches, what we learn is churches corporately are made up of individual Christians, right? And so while Jesus might look at the church at Ephesus that we're going to look at next week and say, hey, you left your first love, right? And this church needs to renew their passion for Jesus and their passion for people and love like they should. That also has an individual requirement on me. Uh, and how do I love God? And how do I love others? And so because each 
part member of North Park makes up the North Park body, right? We are, we are a body made up of individual members. And so there's something for us as a church corporately, something for us an individual, as individuals. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, you say, well, what's, what am I going to get out of this? I'm just kind of investigating the claims here. I'm not sure where I'm at with all this. Well, for an unbeliever, it's my hope that over the next several weeks you'll see the love Jesus has for his church, what the church is really supposed to be, and, and that you'll be drawn to want to be a part of the people of God, which is only possible through faith in Christ. And so today we're going to start in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. And it's going to set up everything else that we're going to be in in chapters 2 and 3 over the next several weeks. And so before we do, I want you to just think for a second, before we read our passage this morning, what do you think about when you think about Jesus? What do you think he's like? <laughs> Maybe there's a particular image when you think of Christ that you latch on to. And sometimes that can be dangerous, by the way. You can get a skewed view of Jesus. Or maybe you've got, um, in your mind, when you think of Jesus, you think of baby Jesus, right? Uh, baby Jesus is like your Jesus. And so in your mind, it, you know, it, it, some people have that, right? It's at Christmas, baby Jesus, humble, meek, in the manger. And it's like Jesus never grew up. And it's baby Jesus. And then some people have this, neither do I condemn you, Jesus. And they have the, the vision of Jesus who's standing with the lady, the adulterous woman, and they're wanting, and they're wanting to stone her. And Jesus tells her, what? He says, he doesn't condemn her, right? And that's, we remember that, and the neither do I condemn you, Jesus. And sometimes we leave off the go and sin no more part of that. And so we can have skewed views of Jesus. And some people's view of Jesus is too harsh. Some people's view of Jesus is too soft. Some of us view Jesus like, well, he's loving and compassionate, a good teacher, and he heals people, and he loves people. So therefore, you know, my sin must not be that big of a deal to him, right? Because at the end of the day, he loves me, oh, he loves me. We sing songs about that. And then on the other end of that, some people have this other view of Jesus, and it's like he can never forgive me for what I've done, right? And so, and we get these warped views, distorted views of Jesus. So it's important that we have a correct view of Jesus, and the vision that we have of Christ and who we understand him to be should strengthen us and empower us to go forward and live the Christian life, both corporately and individually. We should see and understand that Jesus gives John a vision that absolutely rocks his world, but it was given to him for a reason, to share with these particular seven churches that we're going to look at over the next several weeks, so that no matter how bad things got, no matter how much they were struggling, no matter how much they had failed, no matter how successful even some of them have been, they needed a lasting image of the resurrected Christ to fuel the mission. We, we need that. We need to latch on to that. So look with me at Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9, we're going to read down through verse 22. If you don't have a Bible this morning, it will be on the screen for you. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The, hair, the hairs of his head were white like white wool. Like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze and refined in a, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar 
of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the setting here. John is writing this. John is the Apostle John, church history teaches us. Um, He was uh, in the inner circle of Jesus with James um, and Peter. And so this is one of Jesus' closest friends when Jesus was doing his ministry on earth there before his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so John um, is also the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, all the books that start with John, and he's the guy that writes Revelation, which is interesting because these books are, are, are so different in some ways and have their similarities as well. And so Revelation, obviously, is a, just an incredible book. It's almost like something out of the Old Testament. If you go back and read Daniel and Ezekiel and some of these books, some similarities, and those that's on purpose uh, with this book. And so we need to understand that what John is saying here is that he's their brother, he's their partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus. In other words, he is suffering just like they are suffering. And these churches were suffering persecution. This was written, um, probably most scholars believe, in the late first century, uh, between like 90 and 100 AD. Um, this was kind of, uh, you know, during a, a, the issues that were going on in these churches were going on at that time, and so we can kind of see that. And John uh, had been banished to Patmos, which was an island that Rome would put people on in political exile, um, usually. And so for his stance on Jesus and, um, and righteousness and, and his testimony of, of who Christ was, um, he had been banished to this island. Um, some believe he might have even been living in a cave. There's you know, some, um, some scholars that uh, have believed that now. And, and so he, he's there kind of living in isolation. And he says it was on the Lord's Day he has this vision, right? That Lord's Day means Sunday, I believe is what he's saying there. So it was on Sunday. So think about it. It's Sunday. He would normally be with the church somewhere celebrating and worshiping just as you are today, having the Word of God taught uh, or teaching the Word of God uh, as an apostle. But he's banished to this island by himself. But he's going to have some serious church, okay? And, uh, and so he says he's in the Lord's presence he's in he is called up in the holy spirit is this he uses this vernacular here i was in the spirit what does that mean and here's what it basically means it's the it's the absolute conscious manifest presence of god and it's signifying to us that something supernatural and unusual is about to happen um in this terms it's it's this vision this series of visions that john that john gets and then we see the vision starting in verse 12 and in the vision, first thing we're going to see here is we're going to see Jesus in the midst of his church and we're going to see Jesus in his glory. And in verses 12 and 13, he's letting us know that he sees Jesus in the midst of his church. He uses all this imagery, lampstands, um, um, stars, um, one like a son of man, you know, um, eyes like fire and all this. And it's important when you read this to understand the word like is in there. He's not saying, that Jesus' tongue, now that he's ascended into heaven, is literally a two-edged sword. He's not saying that Jesus literally has 
has eyes that are fire. Jesus didn't turn into like a transformer or something like once he ascended into heaven. That's not the point, right? And so sometimes I think we kind of forget that. And Revelation is full of imagery, much like Old Testament prophecy is. And the point is, is he's describing something wonderful and beautiful for us. And he all has symbolism, but it's tied back, a lot of it, to this stuff in the Old Testament. We're going to One passage in particular that we're going to read this morning. And so we need to understand that this is imagery. It's symbolizing things. And Jesus, the hardest things to interpret, Jesus interprets for us. He says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay. And, you know, we kind of could have figured that out. There's seven churches that he's writing to. There's seven lampstands in the vision. That makes sense. Churches are to be light and to bear light. We are the light of the world. So we are these seven lampstands, these seven churches that he's writing to. So every church, you could say... It's a lampstand, right? We are a light-bearing body. And he says, one like a son of man was in the midst of these lampstands. So what's the point there? What's the purpose? Jesus is in the midst of, he is present with his church. Walking among his churches. Evaluating, disciplining, encouraging, empowering Christ in us. The hope of glory. He has not left us. Jesus said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, right? He says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In fact, Jesus said that apart from me, you could do nothing. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you could do nothing. So if he's left us and he's abandoned us, we're in trouble because we can't do anything. But he's not left us. He's with us and he's present with us. And that's the, the point there. And then he says he sees one like the, a son of man. Now that's important. And it sets up everything else and how we understand it. This is a phrase that one of Jesus' favorite phrases for himself during his earthly ministry, was Son of Man. The Gospel of Mark, uh, we went through that a couple of years ago, and it records Jesus using that phrase a lot. And it's drawn from the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel. Let me read to you the passage. Now, in the book of Daniel, he gets this vision of, we're not going to read this particular part, but he gets the vision of the Ancient of Days, God. Okay, And it's very similar in some ways, the white hair and things like that, to the vision of the Son of Man that he gets here. Right? Uh, this... Uh, because he wants us to see that both figures are deity. Right? God the Father, God the Son. And the Ancient of Days uh, is now, during this picture, we see him, um, he is, it has this Son of Man presented before him. In Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14, let me read to you something that was written a long time before Revelation. I saw in the night visions, Daniel writes, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given, and this is important, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here comes one who is presented before the Ancient of Days who has a kingdom that will not pass away who everybody, all peoples and all nations are supposed to serve him. So he's got to be what? It's got to be deity, right? Who else is worthy to be served in that way? Who else can have a dominion that lasts forever? And he's a king because he has a dominion. He has a kingdom. It's the messianic figure. That's the son of man. He's the Messiah. And what John is telling us is that character from Daniel, he saw that character and that character is Jesus. That's the connection he wants us to make. Jesus is the son of man that has authority over all the nations, over all the peoples, who has a kingdom that's going to rule forever, that Daniel saw. He's saying, I saw him as well, and this is what I saw. So when he gives us these images, what he's showing us is Jesus' power and his authority over all things, including his church. The point is clear. Jesus is the one with the eternal kingdom. 
He's the one all people were created to serve. He's the one with authority over everything. And he's the one that stands in the midst of the churches. Now, he's present with them. That's, that's a big deal. When you read this image, that's a big deal. He's not absent. He's not away. He's not disconnected. But he's present with the churches. Remember, these churches are hurting. Some of them are going to die. Jesus is actually going to tell one of the churches, you're going to be locked in prison and some of you are going to die. He's just going to lay it out there, right? I mean, bad things are going on. Some of these churches are struggling. They've got heresies that's being taught in their churches that they've got to deal with. They've got people leading them astray into sexual immorality. I mean, some of them are being faithful even unto death. I mean, there's... Sin, there's righteousness, there's people doing things well, people doing things poorly, people that are half asleep. And in the midst of all that, John says, hey church, wake up. The Son of Man, the one who has authority over everything, God himself, stands in your midst and walks among you. Walks among his churches that when you gather together and you're afraid somebody's going to knock down the door and drag you off to be imprisoned, you need to know Jesus is there. When you're struggling with sin and with, and with immorality in your church that you refuse to deal with, you need to know Jesus is there. When you're tired and you just feel like giving up because the culture seems to be against you, you need to know, church, Jesus is there. And when things are going well, but you feel like everybody hates you, but you feel like you're doing everything Jesus told you to do, and you're just kind of wondering if it's all worth it, you need to know Jesus is there. He needs these churches and he needs us to understand before he gives us some pretty strong words the next several weeks, Jesus is with us. And that can do one of two things. That's encouraging and it's convicting, right? It's, it's convicting because we know we need to honor him because it's his church and he's among us and he's with us and nothing escapes his eyes. And we also need to know that he has not and he will not abandon us. And that's comforting and that's encouraging no matter what we face. You know, when you meet someone, sometimes you can be if you're built up, you know, and what you're thinking, particularly like celebrities, and then you meet them, it's kind of like, it can be like a letdown. You know, can you imagine? You know, Christ has died, he's risen, he's ascended, right? And he gets this vision of Christ, and is he going to, you know, is it going to be, you know, you got what you expect, what, what are you going to see? Is it going to be a letdown? I remember when I was um, a kid, I, mean, I think I was like 10, 11, 12 years old, I had this favorite baseball player, and I won't say him by name, and, you know, I think he's from Florida, so maybe you're related to him, but... Um, but anyway, so I had this favorite baseball player, and uh, as every kid does, and I even had his number that year. We, uh, we had All-Stars that year, and, and I got his number for, on the All-Star team. He was my favorite player. I thought he was awesome. You know, he was great. He was like the best player on the planet at the time uh, in like the 90s. And so, so anyway, and so we, he was hurt, and he was um, actually having to play for a minor league team to rehabilitate uh, before he could go back and uh, get back to the pros. And so I was just all excited because I was like, wow, he's only a couple of hours from where I live. We can go and we can watch him play. This is a big deal while he recovers. And so our all-star team, several of us, we get together and we go. And it was 4th of July. And so and there was a big fireworks show at the ballpark. It was great. And we knew, we had been told where the exit was for all the players when they leave. And all of us kids, we were going to line up right after all this, after the game. And as he came out, we were going to line up and get an autograph. Uh, we don't do autographs anymore. I, you know, I don't know why. We do selfies and pictures and things like that. But back then, you know, we didn't have that. We had autographs. And so you just wanted them to sign something. And so I was waiting with everybody else. And it was late at night. I don't remember how late. But it was like 10, 11, 12 o'clock. It was late. And, it, and the handler for the team comes out. And he says, hey, guys, I'm sorry. He's not going to be able to, uh, to sign autographs. He's got a dentist appointment um, that he's got to get to. Now, I'm like 10. 
But I don't know Dennis is open at like midnight. You know, so I was just like, oh, and, and, and you see him, he like just walks by and you're just like, you know, and I just remember, you know, and I've got his number on my back, you know, and I'm like, you know, wanting to pull, you know, I was his aunt, you know, at the time, I'm sure he had very good reasons to not want to stand around and sign autographs for a hundred kids uh, that late at night, obviously. But as a kid, I was just like, ugh. You know, no longer was he my favorite player. Now I thought he was a jerk, you know, and I wish I could get that back. And I got seriously after that, I never liked him again, you know, because I had this encounter that had let me down. And so you never know when, you, when it, expectations, but can you have higher expectations than what it would be like to see the resurrected Christ? Right? You can't really have higher expectations of that. And so John turns around, he hears this voice and he turns around. But let me tell you, he's not disappointed. He's not let down. In fact, he is just falling out like he's dead before this person because he's paralyzed with fear over the image of this vision of the resurrected Christ when he sees him. And he's because he sees Jesus much like they did on the Mount of Transfiguration in all his glory. In verse 13, he says he sees him clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Uh, important people wear long robes, right? That's kind of the point here. He's important, mad, majestic picture of Christ. And some commentators believe the golden sash around his chest is pointing to his priesthood. A sash much like the high priest would have wore in the Old Testament. And some believe that's what it's pointing to. We can't say with certainty, but it's very possible. We know Jesus is our great high priest. And so he is the one who's among the churches and who is interceding for the churches. And if that be the case, in chapter 1, you've got in verse 1, Jesus presented as the prophet. In verse 13 here, Jesus presented as the priest. And in verse 5, Jesus presented as ruler of the kings of the earth as king. And that is Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. His offices in which he in which he rules over his church. So he's the son of man who has authority over all nations, whose kingdom will never end. Make, and, he, and he's the one that's making intercession for us. He's the one that's making it possible for us to talk to the Father. In verse 14, he says, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Now, what in the world? I mean, so Jesus is old, you know? Uh, what, what, what does this mean? Oh, he's eternal. It's a, it's a picture. White hair in the Bible is a picture of wisdom, right? And the idea here is that he's... he's parlaying it with, in the Old Testament, Daniel's picture of the Ancient of Days with white hair. And his point is, just as the Ancient of Days is eternal and eternally wise, so is the Son of Man. He's eternal and he's eternally wise. This is a king who can rule with justice and with wisdom because he is eternally wise. You know, I get my hair cut now and I freak out a little bit because every time I go, it seems like there's more piles of somebody's white hair that keeps falling in my lap. I don't know who it is. I don't know if the like barber's trying to freak me out and he's just like shaking hair over me. Can't be mine because I'm 35 and there's no way I've got that much gray hair. But um, comes to find out I do, and I'm getting I have less and less of it every year. It seems like, and so I'm I'm proud of those white hairs now. You know, I'm like hang in there. But every time it's more and more and more little shades of gray that are coming out. And in our culture, we don't really think about that like wisdom anymore. Like the Bible portrays that wisdom should come with that, right? Not that you can't, you know, do unwise things as we get older. Obviously, we can. But as we grow and as we mature in Christ, there should be wisdom that comes with that. But we tend to think of it as we, we, we're reminded of our frailty, right? When I see my gray hair falling out, I'm reminded like I'm not 18 anymore, you know, which is, you know, good and sad all at the same time, right? And so, um, and we're reminded, you know, I'm reminded, you know, if I go shoot basketball today, I'll be reminded that I can't jump as high as I used to. I never could jump real high. Now, I, I, I don't even know if you call what I do jumping, you know. I used to could grab, like, the rim, and now I'm hoping I can get the net, you know, at the bottom. You know, it's told, everything's, because I'm just not 
as young as I used to be. And as we get older, things change, and we're reminded of the brevity of life and our frailty and the fact that we all age. But this is not a picture of weakness. This is not a picture of some old guy who, who's getting on up there in years, and he, he just, he's not what he, you know, he can't do what he, what he used to could do. This is not the picture that we have here because he says his eyes are like flaming fire. He says, unless you mistake... This picture of the white hair for being someone that's just kind of like, you know, your grandpa who's just wanting to like hang out with you. I want you to know he's got life and energy and vitality emanating from him. His eyes are like fire. There's nothing that you can't get anything past this guy. He sees everything. His penetrating gaze permeates the earth. And there's nothing he doesn't see. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He, he sees. He knows. He discerns. You can't get anything past him. He's not going to doze off and you'd be able to get away with something. His eyes are like flaming fire. It's a really, it's a, it's a terrifying image. And so he falls down like he's dead. In verse 15, he says, His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Commentators will tell you the Greek is very hard here. We're not, it's hard to be certain what the Greek word actually means there for burnished bronze. But it seems to be, the point is, the picture of strength or judgment. I love uh, John MacArthur's commentary on this, he says, In this day, a king's feet were associated with his judgment because he was exalted. And you stand before him, you might be looking at his feet. And so the idea that his feet, his judgment is, is fixed. It's like burnished bronze. It's with his judgment that is going to crush his enemies. Right? This is one whose judgment is final. It is set and it is secure and it is strong and it is crushing to those who fall under his judgment. It's a terrifying image. The one with all authority over everything, the one who sees all things, he's not nearsighted, he's not uninterested, he's not disengaged, and he's not unjust. He is a just and righteous judge. And he says his voice was like the roar of many waters. Imagine going to Niagara Falls and being near the bottom and just hearing the water crushing, right? He, that's kind of the image you have here, this loud, roaring sound. It's a sound of, of power, really. Think about the power of water. It can erode a beach. It can carve out a river bank. It, water is a very powerful, powerful thing, right? When, it, when it's a lot of it, it's channeled. He says it's like the roar of many waters. He's talking about the power behind this judge, behind this king. When he speaks, it's final. When he speaks, it's certain. When he speaks, it has power and power to change things and power to change your life. It's the voice of one who's like the roar of many waters. And in verse 16, in his right hand, he holds seven stars. Now, who are the seven stars? Well, he says later on in verse 20 that they're the angels. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to be real honest with you. We can't be certain. We can act like we're certain, but we can't be real certain. There's three possibilities that I think are, are, are legit. The least likely one, in my opinion, is that they're literal angels. And it's possible. It's the word means angels. And in Revelation, you see angels a lot. And so it's possible that maybe that there's angels that are assigned to churches, right? Um, to kind of, uh, in, in the spiritual warfare around. But I, it doesn't really share that anywhere else in the New Testament. And so I, I think that's the, personally the least likely. Another possibility is the word angel there can be translated messenger. And you see that at times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where it, where that word for angel in the Greek is actually translated messenger like a human messenger. So it could be these human messengers, which many commentaries believe would be the pastors of these churches, and that he holds the pastors in his right hand. And some believe that it's actually, the idea is that he holds the true identity, or you might say the spirit of that church, and who that church really is. He holds that in his hand. Now, 
Hard to be certain. And I think those last two are the most, one of those is the most likely, obviously. But the idea is Jesus' authority over and control over his church. He holds it in his right hand, his hand of authority and power. He holds, and it doesn't matter who is leading the church and who is governing church. Jesus is the true one, and he is in control. It doesn't matter where that church is at. Jesus is ultimately in control. He is sovereign over the church. It's his church, and he holds it in his hand. And from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. That is obviously an allusion to the word of God. And Rome could trot out every sword against the church to destroy and to cut down and to murder. But there was no sword like the sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus Christ that one day is going to slay every enemy. It is the sword of the word of God. He but speaks a word and his enemies are defeated. He says it's his cutting, piercing word. The word of God, Hebrews 4 tells us, is like this double-edged sword. And so it pierces and it cuts in our life. Some of you have experienced that before. The word of God cutting away at you. Sometimes it's painful. But it's, it's also healing. Right? And so it's this picture here of, of the word of Jesus is, is this sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And, what is that? and you see that image. What does that mean? Just the radiance of his glory. Just the brightness of his glory. We see this on the Mount of Transfiguration. You see it at other times when people have visions of God. Like the sun shining in full strength. That's the only way he could think to explain what it was like to look into the face of Christ. And You know, the, I believe one of the big ideas here is dependent on your relationship with this being, with this person, with this Son of Man, with this Christ, Jesus. Determines on whether this is a positive thing or a good thing in your life. You know, it's kind of like the sun itself. It can be positive. It can be negative. You go to the beach and you're wanting to get some sun and want to have some fun and it's a bright sunny day. Good. Awesome, right? Um, it's, it's been cold and now spring's coming and it's a bright sunny day and the temperature peaks back up above. Well, here, like, you know, it's back up above 80. I don't know. Um, and, but you're like, yay, you know, warms your bones. It's, like, it's, this, it's this welcome thing. You're standing in line at Disney World for six hours in August. You hate the sun. You curse the sun, right? You're asking God, why did you create the sun, right? It, depending on the circumstances, your opinion of the sun changes. And depending on your relationship with who this person is, your opinion on his face shining like sun in full strength and the brightness of the radiance of his glory changes. Because if you're, on, if you're not his friend, if you're not for, under his care, if he's not the one you've submitted your life to, if you've set yourself up at, rather as his enemy, then that's a terrifying thing. But if he's your Lord, if he's your Savior, if he's your King, if he's for you and not against you, then it's an incredibly encouraging and powerful picture. And so how does John respond? He falls down like he's dead. He just falls out. You know, some people have this attitude, when I stand before God, I've got this I'm going to say, and I've got that I'm going to say. And you ever hear that? You, you, or you're sharing Christ with someone, and they're like, yeah, you know, I believe God, and I've got a bone to pick with him about this and about that. When you stand before God, he'll do the bone picking, right? You're not going to pick any bones. You're going to shut him. Right? And you're going to fall out. And you're not going to have anything to say. Your mouth will be stopped. We'll have nothing that we can bring before him. That's the importance of the mediator, the intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ who stands in our place. And Jesus here, he's, he's just, he stands before Jesus and he just falls out. There's nothing to say. And then you see this picture. He's laid his right hand on me. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen to John? This hand of power and authority, this omnipotent being reaches out and lays his hand on him. Is he going to kill him? What's he going to do? Instead he says, fear not. Incredible picture. As John says, he takes his hand and he lays it on my shoulder, you can think. 
And he says, don't be afraid. Fear not. If God himself, if this person tells you to not be afraid, what's there to be afraid of? Think about that. If, if the one who rules the nations, if the one who everybody was created to serve and who has a kingdom that's going to last forever and no one can thwart his rule or his reign, if that one from Daniel 7 is the one who looks at you and says, I know you're terrified about this or about that, don't be afraid. What in the world would we have to be afraid of? If the only one who is worthy of ultimate universal supreme fear tells you not to be afraid, then there is absolutely nothing to fear, not even death itself. He says, don't be afraid, I am. I am. It's a reference to God, to Yahweh. Does Jesus have the I am statement? It's another I am statement of Jesus here. I am the first and the last. You say, well, how do you know he's talking about, it's a reference to Jesus being God because he says I'm the first and the last. And if you go back up the first eight verses of Revelation, it says the Lord God says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And Jesus uses a synonym here and says, I am the first and the last. He's saying, me too. Right? And the first means, I am the first. He's the creator. Everything comes from him. He created all things. He was the agent of creation. He's always been. He is the word that was with God and was God. And the word became flesh in the person of Christ. He, he's always been. And he's the last. Everything's headed towards him. He is the goal of creation. We were created by him and for him. He is the means and he is the end. Life itself is about Jesus. That's what he's saying here. And he says, I'm the living one. I'm the living one. I'm the one who is alive by the very definition and give life. I have died and I'm alive forevermore. I died. You know, John, you were there. I died. But I'm alive. And you saw I was resurrected. I'm alive forever to never die again. And so therefore, I hold the keys to death and to Hades. In other words, he's saying when you have the keys, you're in control. Right? You got the car keys, you're the one that's got control of the car. You got the house key, you're the one that can get in the house. Jesus says, I've got the keys to death and hell. In other words, I control it. I have authority over death and Hades. There's, you shouldn't fear death, John, because I've defeated death. And you don't have to fear where you're going to go when you die, John, because I've got control over that too. It's an incredible picture of the power and sovereignty of Jesus. And if you see Jesus the way John does here, all you can do is be paralyzed before him until he tells you what to do. Because fear paralyzes you. And he looks at him and says, don't be afraid. And then he gives him something to do and he empowers him to do it. I want you to write, therefore, the things that you have seen. We have this book today because John did what Jesus told him to. And if this is who Jesus is, and if this is the kind of authority and power he has, and this is what Jesus is like, then what other choice do we have but to obey him when he tells us to do something? Could it be that the reason we're so slow at obeying Jesus and doing what he tells us to do is that we have an incorrect, weak, anemic view of Jesus? Could it be that if we had John's view of Jesus, John's vision of Jesus before us every day, that maybe we would be a little bit more likely to jump when Jesus says jump and hop when he says hop and do whatever he tells us to do? Of course we would. Because when one like this speaks to you and tells you to do something, you do it. Here's the bottom line of all this, I believe. I think here's, if I was to summarize verses 9 through 20 of chapter 1, it's this. Christ in all his glory with full authority over all people and nations, is powerfully present with His church to evaluate us, to discipline us, to encourage us, and to empower us as we seek to bear light, His light, to this world. That's the takeaway. That's the point of the vision that He wants us to see. That this authoritative God 
The Son of Man, Jesus Christ Himself, is with us. He's with us, and He will evaluate us, and He will discipline us, and He will encourage us, and He will equip us because He wants us to bear light. We are lampstands that He wants us to bear light to this world around us. How many of our problems in our churches, how many of our problems in our personal lives stem from a flawed view of the presence and power of Christ with His people? If we had a better understanding of the power of Jesus, the power of Christ, and a better understanding of His presence with us, how much would that resolve in our lives? A lot. People toy with sin instead of dealing with it because they don't understand the power and presence of Christ. People play games at church instead of being the church because they don't understand the power and presence of Christ in this church. We could even begin to overvalue our own opinions and ideas and even that of others instead of understanding, first asking, what does Jesus want? Because it's His church because He's powerfully present with His church. See, we need a correct view of the power and presence of Christ over us and with His church so that we can have the freedom and joy to chase God's design for us. It's freeing. When you, under, when you get this picture of Jesus, it frees you up. It frees you up. So how do you respond today? How do we respond personally and corporately as a church? to this? How do you respond to this kind of image? Three very quick ways. Number one, we need to humbly worship and obey this King. We need to humbly worship and obey this King for He is God and He is over us. Right? That's one of the things it's teaching. He is God and He is over us in authority. So what do you do? You humbly worship and obey Him. If, as Daniel 7 says, all dominion and glory and a kingdom, right? Peoples and nations, languages are exist to serve Him. That's what you do. You worship Him and you obey Him. If Jesus is really God, as the text is showing, the first and the last, if He's really the King and the judge over all the earth, the only proper response to His power and His presence today is to worship Him and to obey Him. You and I need a vision of Jesus that drives you to worship Him. That it drives you to obey Him. That strikes you with awe. Without that, we have the wrong vision of who Christ is. If you have a vision of Jesus that He can be negotiated with, if you can have a vision of Jesus that He can be manipulated, or that He's unconcerned, or He's disconnected, you've got the wrong vision of Jesus. Church, let's be the people that when we gather and we worship on Sundays, we worship like we believe that Jesus is powerfully present with us. No matter the song that's being sung, no matter the style that's being sung, let's act like we believe Jesus is here and that we're worshiping Him because, newsflash, He really is. He really is. And so I don't, I don't like to sing, well, clap, hung, wave a, hum, wave a hanky, dance around in a circle. I don't care. You're in His presence. Do something, right? Respond. Obey. Worship. Do whatever it needs. Whatever you're, in your heart He prompts you to do, you respond to Him because he, you're in His midst. You're in His presence. You say, well, how do we know that? Because His Word tells us that. And if His Word's not true about that, it's not true. What can we trust in about anything? We humbly worship and obey this King. And that's a wonderful, good thing. And number two, we can fearlessly trust Him. Trust Him in and with everything. Because He's for us. He's not just over us. He's for us. So we can fearlessly trust Him. He says, fear not. We don't have to be afraid. We can do whatever He tells us to do. Go wherever He tells us to go because He's with us. Can you imagine what it was like for John to fall dead and awe and terror before Him and then to hear Him say, don't be afraid. The only reason we have to not fear this person is he's for us. Because when he says, I died and rose again, we know that the, the Bible tells us he died for us. And he rose for our justification. 
He's for us. If you're a believer in Christ today, He is for you. He is for you. He has His best intentions for you. God's intentions towards you are good. His plans aren't to crush you or to abandon you. He's not working against you. He is working for your ultimate good so you can fearlessly trust Him with wild abandon in every area. Your job, your marriage, your parenting, your finances, in every area. You can just go all in and trust Him. If this be true. If this not be true, then we're really wasting time. And you'd be a fool to trust Him. But if it be true, why should we fear? And if you don't know Christ today, if you come to Him in faith, there's no reason to fear. But if you reject Christ, you need to understand, if you stay in your sin and you refuse to repent and believe the gospel and to be forgiven and have your life changed by Jesus, you have every reason to fear. Because you're not going to stand in front of a baby in a manger. You're you're not standing in front of meek and lowly Jesus. You're standing in front of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the judge of all the earth, the king of kings, whose feet are like burnished bronze, whose eyes are like a blazing fire, and he's going to see and know everything. We've got every reason to fear. But if we know him, if we trust him, and in his death and in his resurrection, and allow him to give us life, we have no reason to fear anything or anyone. Fearlessly trust him with all things, because he's with us, he's for us. Number three, we can confidently pursue his mission as we bear his light because he's with us. He's over us, so we worship and obey him. He's for us, so we fearlessly trust him. And he's with us, so we confidently pursue his mission as we bear his light. We can, we can live in this world confidently. We can share the gospel with confidence. We can make decisions about our life rooted in the word of God with, with confidence. Because Jesus walks among the lampstands. Light bearing. That's, why, that's what he's driving at here when he says we're lampstands. He's wanting us to know we, we're, we exist. To, he's saying the church exists to bear light. Is it, that's why you're here. Of all the images Jesus could have given him, he gives him this image because he wants us to get that. That in this dark world, these churches are suffering. They're under persecution. It's a difficult time to be a Christian in this day. And he says, you're a lampstand. You're, 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 you exist to bear light. You know, that's why you're here. You exist to point people to the ultimate light. Jesus said what? I am the light of the world. So where does our light come from? It comes from Him because He's with us and He's in us. And we bear His light. That's why Jesus in Matthew 5 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Right? We sing about that. Hide it under a bush. Oh, no. Right? Okay. Um, we put it on a stand. And it gives light to everybody in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. He says the whole purpose is it so, not so your light shines, not so the life of Christ in you emanates so that people look at you and say, what a swell guy, what a swell gal, but so that people look at you and they say, wow, glory to God. Who is this God? Right? It's, it's so that they give glory to God. And Paul said something similar in Philippians 2. Verses 14 through 16. This is what Paul told the Philippians. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. In other words, don't bicker, don't fight, don't fuss. That you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. What's the point? Jesus stands in our midst. 
the light of the world, the king of the earth, the king of all people stands in our midst so that he can strengthen us and empower us as we stand in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation and bear light. He's with us so that he's among us so that we can be among them. He's with us and he's present with us so we can be present in this world to bear his light to this world. That's why he says, listen, I didn't put you in this world to to take you out of this world. I'm going to leave you in this world till I come back to influence and to point this world to the light, which is me, to bear light in this world. He's with us so that we can be in this world, but not of this world. The light of Christ shining through us and his presence with us aren't meant to give us warm fuzzies on Sundays. And simply to help us sleep better at night, they're meant to fuel our confidence as we pursue his mission of making disciples and bearing his light in this world. It's not just meant for your comfort. It is, but it's way more than that. It's, 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 it's meant to fuel us as we ask him to give us boldness to be the people he's called us to be. So if you're a Christ follower today, let me ask you, do you think of yourself as being light in a dark world? You think of yourself that way? Would others describe your life, your conduct, your actions, your attitudes, those you work with, those you, you're in your home, as light-bearing, bearing the light of Christ, pointing to the source of light, the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, I want to encourage you to read and think over Revelation chapter 1 this week in this vision of Jesus and ask God to help you see Jesus more clearly so you can more faithfully bear his light. It could be that you've got the wrong view of Jesus. In North Park, if we can just let this vision of Jesus capture us, you'll dream bigger. You'll dream bigger. You'll think bigger things and think bigger thoughts. This is the Jesus that is with us on mission that's never been the question. The question's never been, is Jesus with us? The question's always, is are we going to join Jesus in what he's doing in the world? Right? That, that, that's the, the question's on us. It's, it's not on him. Will we be the lampstand that he's called us to be? Will we be the, bear the light that he's called us to be? Will we, will we respond to him like he is the one in all authority that he's in our midst? And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, and you have reason to fear the judgment, you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know that this one is the one, who, he said it, he said it, who has died and who has risen and lives forevermore. And he holds the keys to death and Hades. There's never been a time in your life where you understood your sin before this holy one. The one who is the beginning and the end. The first and the last. You know, ultimately in sin, what we do is we live like we're the first and the last. The life's about us. It finds its meaning in us and what we want and what we desire. That's ultimately at its core. That's what we do when we're sinning. We're living like life's all about us and it revolves around me. And if there's never been a time in your life where that got flipped... And you realize, it's not about me. He's the first and the last. He's the one who's died in my place, who's paid my sin debt, who's risen from the dead, and you've never turned from your sin and from your being just enraptured by yourself and embraced Him as Lord and as Savior and He and recognized Him as the first and the last over all things and over your life, then I would encourage you today to trust Jesus. So how do I do that? Just right there in your heart. Just run to Him in faith. Call out to Him in your heart. Ask Him to be your Lord, to be your Savior. Thank Him for His death and His resurrection. And put your faith not in yourself, not in your good works, not in your trying hard, but in what He's already done and dying for you and being risen from the dead. Because you don't hold the keys to death and Hades. He does. So don't trust you. Trust Him. 
how would God have you respond today to his word? We have to get this vision locked in before we can move forward in the weeks to come. That's what Jesus wanted them to have. Because he's actually going to reference this vision most, with most of the churches when he introduces himself to them. Because he wants them to remember the vision. Because this word that he's going to give to the churches is coming to the one, from the one with absolute authority and absolute power and who is present with them. To comfort them, to empower them, to convict them, to help them. How does this Jesus want you to respond today? I don't know. How's he spoken to you? I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. So 